Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Marcy and Andrew Spitzer. We want to bring new people into this messy, endearing, and romantic story of Israeli history. So please, if you find this podcast meaningful, interesting, anything, please share this pod with five friends. Okay, yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they are wrong. In my job as a Jewish and Israel educator, I find myself giving presentations across the globe. It's fun. And one of my favorite things to do recently is to show a YouTube clip of Mahmoud Abbas. Remember this one? If your Arabic is rusty like mine is, I'll admit it. He just said, from 1947 to today, Israel has committed 50 holocausts in Palestinian cities and villages. And then he lists these quote-unquote holocausts, Der Yassin, Tantura, Kfar Qasim. So, of course, I ask the audience, how do you all feel when you hear that line? They scream out, angry, it's libelous. And you know what I say? I agree completely. But then I say, one quick question. What happened in Der Yassin? Raise your hand if you can tell me what happened at Kfar Qasim. Inevitably, the room gets silent really quick. And I hope my point is clear. You're allowed to love Israel. All good. But love isn't enough. We also need to know the full, deeper story of Israel. The good, the bad, the ugly, the everything. Including the difficult story of Kfar Qasim, where the Israeli army gunned down 49 Arab civilians as they returned home from work in October of 1956. That was a hard sentence to say out loud. If you're trying to locate Kfar Qasim, it's not a Palestinian city in the West Bank or Gaza. It's an Israeli Arab city a little northeast of Petah Tikva. This little village isn't just like any other in Israel. It's a scar of the Arab psyche, a black mark etched into Israeli history, and an enduring symbol of the uneasy relationship between Arabs and Jews in Israel, the Jewish state they both call home. For nearly 70 years, the memory of the massacre has haunted Israel's Arabs. And sadly, as listeners of Unpacking Israeli History know all too well, the Arab-Israeli conflict is peppered with massacres, murders on both sides. So why does the Arab community commemorate this one specifically? What happened in Kfar Qasim that day in 1956? Why do we still feel its reverberations today in 2023? 
and why might this difficult story actually be the key to peace in the Arab-Israeli conflict? I want to invite you to imagine this for a minute. The Israel of 1956 bears little resemblance to the Israel of 2023. There were no startups back then, no real infrastructure or significant exports, only an ever-surging flood of refugees straining the country's limited resources to their breaking point. To say nothing of the threats from next door, compared to Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, Israel is the scrappy little runt of the Middle East. And back then, it was even smaller than it is today. The West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the Golan Heights were all in enemy hands, making the Jewish state that much harder to defend. Arab infiltrators regularly sneak through the country's poorest borders, most to work the lands that they had left behind, but some also known as Fedayeen came to steal or sabotage or kill. For more on that, you'll want to check out our episode on Kibya. The link is in the show notes. By 1956, Israel's eastern border was an unofficial battleground as the Israeli military and border police faced down the infiltrators. And now, another war was brewing. See, Egypt controlled two of the Middle East's most important trade routes, the Suez Canal and the Straits of Tehran. No need to take out your map right now, but if you want to, go for it. And because Egypt and Israel were, shall we say, not friends, the Egyptian president forbade Israel from accessing either one, preventing the development of the Israeli economy. Closing off shipping lanes to Israel felt like an act of war. To make matters even more complicated in September of 1955, Egypt concluded a significant arms deal with the Soviets. The Czech arms deal left Egypt very well armored, alarming its tiny Jewish neighbor, not to mention the United States, who watched the growing Soviet influence in the Middle East with alarm. But the straw that broke the camel's back was Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal in the summer of 1956. Add a constant stream of Egyptian infiltrators in Israel, and you have all of the ingredients for a full-scale conflagration. By the way, Israel Nerd Corner Alert! After the Suez Crisis, Israel officially declared closing off shipping lanes to be an act of war. So yes, war was coming, but no one could have predicted that the first salvo would be fired not on the sands of the Sinai, but in a small bucolic village inside Israel. That the first casualties of the war would be the 49 civilians killed at Kfar Qasim. Now, I'm sure that plenty of historians might disagree with that analysis, and I'm not trying to say anything about these 49 civilians leading to the Suez Crisis or the Sinai War. Nothing to do with that. But I'd argue that we can't talk about the Suez Crisis without talking about this moment. And just as importantly, I'd argue that in the sweeping story of the Suez Crisis, these ordinary men and women deserve to be remembered. They were 49 of Israel's 156,000 Arabs, and that number 156,000 is over 10% of Israel's population at the time. And before diving into the events of Kfar Qasim, let's talk about these Arab citizens of Israel. I think that will give us the context we need to understand what happened in Kfar Qasim that day. I think I've made it clear that life in early Israel wasn't exactly easy for anyone. But despite the lack of security or resources or money, Jewish Israelis were free to come and go. 
Arabs, on the other hand, lived under martial law until 1966. Practically speaking, that means they had to worry about curfews, collective punishment, and the demolition of their buildings and homes. Does that surprise you? Does it make you wince? It's certainly hard for me to say out loud, but as I talk about often, we can't build a better future without taking a good, hard look at the past. So I'm looking at the past as completely as I can. And what I see in this instance is a real inconsistency between Israel's stated ideals and its sometimes ugly reality. A decade before Ben-Gurion declared independence, he sketched out a rapturous vision for the Jewish state. At the 20th Zionist Congress in 1937, he rhapsodized about one law for citizen and stranger alike. The Jewish state will be an example to the world in its behavior toward minorities and foreigners. And to Israel's credit, when Ben-Gurion signed the Declaration of Independence in 1948, it read, The State of Israel will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. But though the Declaration of Independence is enormously important, it doesn't exactly enshrine laws. So from 1948 to 1966, Arabs in Israel lived under military rule. In public, Ben-Gurion's government justified the policy as a matter of national security. This is now the to-be-sure sentence in journalism. To be sure, security was a major concern for Israel. And rightfully so. And that's actually an understatement. But as Israel's internal security agencies made clear, Israel's Arab minority wasn't the threat. Israel's neighbors were. And some in the government knew it. Even the hardliners, the men obsessed with the safety of the Jewish people and the Jewish state, believed that security was a flimsy excuse for keeping Arab communities under military rule for nearly 20 years. Among them was, come on, you know we can't go more than an episode without saying his name, my friend and yours, Ben-Gurion's fiercest opponent, the leader of the right-wing Kheru party and former Irgun commander Menachem Begin. Welcome, Menachem Begin. Beginning in 1949, Begin wrote that martial law was a harmful anachronism. Maybe it had been necessary during the 1948 war, okay, but Israel won that war, and the Arabs who remained within its borders were offered citizenship. So Begin argued that there was no reason Arab citizens should live under martial law when Jewish ones didn't. Ready for some armchair psychology? Part of me wonders whether Begin might have identified with Israel's Arabs in some way, because in one of those dark ironies of history, the terms of Israeli martial law were based on the laws of the British mandate that had controlled the country just a decade before. If you've already heard our Black Saturday episode, then you know that the Brits were Begin's sworn enemies, that he'd lived under deep cover for years, avoiding arrests even as he planned attacks on British targets. And you know how deeply Begin had longed for a state. So perhaps he empathized with the Arab villagers who found themselves in limbo, unable to build a real life while the military restricted their movement and their freedom. Food for thought. But governments around the world have a long history of sacrificing personal liberties in the name of state security. So as tensions with Egypt heated up in the fall of 1956, the Israeli government began to worry about all of their borders. 
the armistice lines that divided Jordan and Israel had never presented much of a deterrent for Arab infiltrators sneaking in from Jordan. Again, listen to our Kibya episode if you haven't yet. And if Egypt was ready for war, Jordan might very well try to get in on the action. All of which left the Israeli military very, very concerned. Because the Jordan-Israel border, or rather the armistice line that divided the countries, was peppered with Arab villages. And if the Jordanians attacked, some of the Israeli military worried that Arab villagers might very well help. The Israelis had fought a war on two fronts before. They weren't particularly eager to do it again, but they were prepared. Ordinarily, curfew in the Arab villages was 10 p.m., but as the military geared up to invade the Sinai on October 29, 1956, the commander in charge of Kfar Qasim sector made a fateful decision. The historical record isn't exactly clear as to why. Was he acting under implicit orders or did he go rogue? We don't know. What we do know is that Colonel Yisachar Shadmi, the brigade commander of the Triangle District that included Kfar Qasim, made the simple decision to move the curfew up by five hours. Effective immediately, all villagers were to remain in their homes starting at 5 p.m. In the age of the iPhone, it's pretty easy to spread information. My phone spends all day distracting me with breaking news and urgent alerts. That's a lie. It's primarily just scrolling through TikTok and watching trends, people making incredible omelets that seem impossible. I don't know how they do it. And of course, basketball highlights. I love basketball. You know that. But if something big is happening, chances are I'll find out about it immediately. But 1956 was not exactly the digital age. There were no phone alerts, no Twitter. I'm prepared to bet that the villagers working the fields didn't even have a radio. So there was no way for the workers to know their curfew had just moved up by five hours. And there was no way for them to know that the penalty for breaking the curfew was death. Because Shadmir's orders were clear. I don't want sentimentality, he told his battalion commander, Major Shmuel Malinki, a few hours before the curfew went into effect. I don't want detainees. And if someone didn't know about the curfew, Shadmir answered in Arabic, Allah Yerchamu. Sounds almost exactly like Hebrew, Hashem Yerachem. May God have mercy on them in death, as he didn't in life. But God covered his eyes. Less than 45 minutes before the updated curfew took effect, the platoon in charge of Kfar Qasim spread out around the village. A sergeant went to tell the Mukhtar, or elder head of the village, about the new rule, but Malinki had already passed on his orders word for word. And though most of the platoons ignored the command to shoot innocent villagers who were unaware of the curfew, one platoon obeyed the orders to the T. Between 5 and 6 p.m. on October 29, 1956, Shots rang out through Kfar Qasim, men, women, boys, girls. Some historians put the death toll at 49, others at 51. But it's worth understanding who these victims were. They were people with families, the elderly, adults, teenagers, children, civilians, who had done nothing wrong other than being Arabs in a village near Jordan on the day that the army was preparing for war. In my dissertation on Israel education, I wrote about the possibility of being passionate about Zionism and having empathy for others. The two can go hand in hand. This is one of those moments. I'm not Israeli, but every time an Israeli is killed in a terror attack, I feel it because I understand that the bullet, the bomb, the boulder, 
all of them could just as easily have been aimed at me. That to a terrorist, an Israeli is a Jew, is a Jew, is a Jew. So I think I can understand the pain Kfar Qasim caused in the Arab community. The pain it causes still, because Kfar Qasim is a rallying cry. This is what it means to be an Arab living in Israel. This is what we can expect to be put under curfew and shot coming home from work. And I feel a real empathy with that cry. How can I not? Jewish people know what it's like to be second-class citizens for a few thousand years, right? And we know what it's like to be subject to a government that doesn't protect you, or worse, that participates in the violence. It's heartbreaking. To add insult to injury, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and the military censor tried to cover up the whole affair, but the facts were too shocking to keep under wraps. The story leaked with the help of a few rogue Knesset members who had visited the wounded and taken their testimonies. Newspapers published all the gory details. The Israeli public was horrified, and I want to be clear, this is not one of those stories where there are conflicting accounts of what happened. Did it happen? Did it not? Was there provocation? Was there not? Over the next two years, 11 soldiers were brought to trial before Judge Benjamin Halevi. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's because Judge Halevi has shown up in this podcast before. Four years earlier, Halevi had handed down one of Israel's most infamous rulings, that Rudolf Kastner had sold his soul to the devil. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the Kastner trial episode. Halevi was a man of strong opinions, and his ruling on this event was iconic. Because the defense chose a pretty weak line. True, the soldiers were just following orders, but anyone with a moral compass could have seen that the order was, as Judge Halevi put it, manifestly illegal, with a black flag flying over it. Halevi sentenced eight men to decades in prison, but the sentences were quickly commuted, and in the end, no one served more than two years. And Issachar Shadmi, the man who had moved up the curfew and given the order to shoot on sight, the man who had simply said, may God have mercy on them, when asked what to do with the villagers who didn't know about the curfew, he too was put on trial on charges of exceeding his authority. For the Arab community, Shadmi's trial was further salt in the wound. He was sentenced to pay a symbolic fine of only a few cents. Arab Israelis have not forgotten the insult of Shadmi clutching his symbolic coin as though saying this is what 49 lives are worth. And some historians believe the plot went even deeper, that the massacre was in fact part of a larger, more nefarious plan. Though the official documents remain sealed, the testimonial evidence has trickled out over the years. The Israeli government did have a secret plan. They called it Mivtzach Afar Peret, aka Operation Mole. You might have heard discussion or accusations about population transfer, about some of Israel's founding fathers advocating to get rid of local Arabs, and that is a whole thorny, complicated story, and one that deserves its own full episode. So I'm not going to get into it here. But as usual, I will say, please, please look at the sources in the show notes. For our purposes, I will say that Operation Mole's objective was to compel Arabs to abandon their villages and end up either in detention camps in Israel's interior or to cross into Jordan. But again, we don't know the full story here. Because as I said before, the records associated with the incident remain sealed. Historians and lawmakers are still, to this day, petitioning the government to publicize all the information arguing that the Israeli public deserves to know all the details of what really happened. In the meantime, each year the Arab community in Israel holds a day of remembrance for the 49 victims. 
and importantly, several Israeli officials, including two presidents, have attended the event and formally apologized for what happened on that day in Kfar Qasim. Now, going off script here, I read the Apple review comments a lot, and one comment really bothered me. It said, we're just doing propaganda on unpacking Israeli history. Nothing is further from the truth. I appreciate all the comments, but it's just not true. And I could prove it. You just listen and you're listening to this episode. So that's just an important pause that I want to make to all the listeners out there. This is real history, the real story about Israel. And listen, there are lots of silly jokes I could make about Jewish guilt, but there's a nugget of truth in there. Don't forget that the holiest day on our calendar is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day we stand in front of God and confess to the sins we've committed over the past year. But God doesn't forgive the sins we've committed against our fellow human beings. For that, we have to go straight to the source. So how do you atone? How do you ask for forgiveness from your neighbor for an event like Kfar Qasim? The way we answer that question matters because it's not just about Kfar Qasim. The answer applies to the entire fraught and fractured history of Jews and Arabs in the Middle East. Last year, for a different podcast I made called The Power Of, I sat down with Professor Moshe Halbertal to talk about his view of forgiveness. We weren't talking about specific events, but something he said really stuck with me, and it's something I was thinking about and working on this episode, about the story of Kfar Qasim, and with all of Israeli history. He said, Part of the pain of being harmed sometimes is being isolated in your harm through an all-going environment of denial. That's why I think Israeli officials are absolutely doing the right thing by apologizing for Kfar Qasim. Because how can any of us, Jewish or Arab, Israeli or Palestinian, ever heal if we deny the pain of the other side? If we cannot stare the truth in the face and say, this is what happened, we can't. But I think we still have a ways to go. The Knesset, Israel's parliament, has repeatedly voted against a bill that would acknowledge state responsibility for the tragedy. I think, and this is just my opinion, that might be the wrong move. There's power in staring history in the face. But by keeping it shut away, by trying to conceal what really happened, they're implicitly saying, this is too much to stare in the face. This is something we can't confront. But we can confront it. We have to, because otherwise we're mired in the past, not looking forward towards the possibility of a better future. And I have to believe that a better future is possible, that both sides have the ability to acknowledge the hurts of the other, to do what Mahmoud Abbas got wrong by not acknowledging the Munich massacre in 1972, and also to forgive. Because as Professor Halbertal also said, atonement and forgiveness mean that you're not possessed by the past, not possessed by the power of the other. I have a claim against someone for harm that someone did to me or to another person, and I decide uh, not to claim it. I decide to let go of the past. I decide not to be imprisoned in my need for retribution, revenge, compensation. I want to let go. Among other things, what I want to do is uh, free myself of the grip of the person who has harmed me. What would it look like if all of us in the Middle East approach our history like that? If we acknowledge the harms we've done to one another truly and openly, and then we learned how to liberate ourselves from the past and move forward? It's a difficult question to answer, 
and I don't know if it will ever happen. But we're doing our part here on Unpacking Israeli History to shine a bright light on all aspects of the past. Because that's the first step in letting the past go and looking towards a brighter future. So that's the tragic story of Kfar Qasim in a nutshell. And these are your five fast facts. Number one, in 1956, Israel was battling a commercial embargo from Egypt, as well as a steady stream of infiltrators who had already killed 1,300 Israelis. By October of 1956, Israel, with the encouragement of Britain and France, prepared to invade Egypt. Number two, as the country prepared for war, the IDF imposed a curfew on all Arab villages which were already under martial law. Number three, one commander moved the curfew up by five hours and instructed soldiers to shoot violators on site. Most platoons disobeyed the order, allowing workers who didn't know about the curfew to return to their homes. But one platoon followed orders, shooting the Arab-Israeli citizens of Kfar Qasim on site as they returned home from work. All told, around 50 people were murdered. Number four, despite the government's attempt to censor this incident, the public found out. Eleven soldiers were put on trial and eight were sentenced, but all were pardoned after two years. The officer who gave the command was acquitted of murder, ordered only to pay a symbolic fine. This further enraged Israel's Arab population. And number five, in 2022, evidence emerged that what happened there in Kfar Qasim in 1956 was likely related to a government plan called Operation Mole, meant to encourage Arab villagers to flee to Jordan or to another area. Still, many of the official documents surrounding what happened at Kfar Qasim and Operation Mole remain classified to this day. Those are the five fast facts, but here is one enduring lesson as I see it. I'm not a pacifist. I don't think you could be a pacifist if you want a Jewish state to exist in the Middle East. It simply doesn't work. So I understand that war, while ugly, is sometimes necessary. The phrase that Benny Morris used years ago to describe the War of Independence, which is, to make an omelet, you gotta crack some eggs, makes me instinctively uncomfortable, but I get it. And I also understand that the leaders of 1950s Israel were dogged by the very real sense that the sky could fall on them at any moment, that their decisions were all that stood between their people and oblivion. At the same time, none of that erases the fact that Israeli leaders made serious mistakes, that for nearly 20 years, Israel's Arabs were forced to live under martial law, which like I said, Menachem Begin fought to end. And that as war approached, one IDF platoon killed 49 Israeli citizens. These are facts we need to acknowledge. Too often, Israel, unlike any other country in the world, isn't allowed nuances or gray areas or moral ambiguity. And I'll, I'll explain why. One side argues that Israel is pure evil. And when one side argues it's pure evil, you know what the other does? It reacts in equally one-dimensional protest. No, it's pure good. But that's not what Israel's about. Heck, that's not what nuanced thinking is about. We should be able to talk about martial law and Kfar Qasem and Mivtzach Afar Peret without feeling like we're questioning the legitimacy of the state, of its right to exist. Because that's such a stifled, cramped way of thinking. Every country has a track record. No government held no person as entirely clean hands. Acknowledging that doesn't take away from the Zionist project. Because a morally strong country, a morally strong person, doesn't back down from their mistakes. And if the Jewish people, the Jewish state, is ever going to reconcile with our Arab neighbors, 
then we have to be able to fully recognize the trauma that moments like Farkasim inflicted. Just like our neighbors will have to recognize our decades of trauma and mistrust. Like it or not, we live side by side. So this mutual recognition is the only way that our fractured country will ever begin to heal. Now it's time for our final segment, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. We get the best emails from you guys and we want to share them with the world. This week, meet Audrey. Audrey wrote, Hi, Noam. Hey, Audrey. My soul sister, Gabriella, introduced me to your podcast a few weeks ago, and since then, I've been binging. We made Aliyah to Jerusalem 11 years ago, and your podcast is bringing a new dimension and renewed awareness on how fortunate we are to be living here in relatively peaceful and prosperous times. Your episode about Darya Sin somehow started me, as in my mind it was somewhere out of Jerusalem, but when I googled it and realized it was actually Harnof, it somehow triggered something in me and then made me think of the village of Lifta. This land is full of history and sometimes we tend to forget or take for granted where we live. Thank you for your fascinating podcast and for challenging our viewpoints. Audrey, thank you for this letter. A few thoughts. A, we have to do an episode about Lifta. What a story. And B, I was blown away by how this podcast impacted you. It made you think, and then you didn't stop there. You did more research. You took the ideas and complications of loving and living in Israel seriously. So thank you for that and for sharing it with us. If you listeners, if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, ruminations, whatever to share, don't hesitate. Be like Audrey. Send me a message at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpack related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And one more time, don't hate me. Write me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Your email might even get on the show. This episode was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes the amazing writer Adi Elbaz and Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week.